You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, my name is Dean, the pastor at City Church. Good morning. We're going through the Bible in a year, and this week we're on Leviticus and Numbers together. Uh, it's raining during Leviticus. I think it's kind of not a coincidence, but we'll see. Uh, and, and oftentimes I know that this is sort of flyover country uh, when it comes to reading the Bible, where it's just kind of easy to, to skip over. It's uh, kind of the place where Bible reading plans can die a thousand deaths. Uh, some say, I, I call it the week the SEC teams play all their Sunbelt schools uh, in college football, uh, where it's just kind of easy just to look over it, not a big deal, but really it's actually incredibly rich and has much for us as people who claim to be the people of God in Christ uh, for us to know and understand because the people of Israel, their story is also our story because we're the spiritual descendants of all the promises that were given to Abraham. I'd love for you to catch up if you haven't been here at all uh, on our website or on iTunes uh, where we were in Genesis week one. We were in Exodus last week. And in the chronological order, it goes numbers next. Uh, but Leviticus and numbers, a lot of what's happening is simultaneously at the same time uh, that's taking place uh, where Leviticus is kind of a, a sidebar and kind of going into more detail of what's taking place regarding the law uh, given to God's people. So Numbers is where we're going to kind of begin, not kind of begin, where we're going to begin, uh, and it's really a travel story, you could say. Uh, it is a quest story, and it ends at the, at the people wandering in the wilderness uh, because of the sinfulness of the nation, rather than actually occupying the land as was promised to them. Now, the Hebrew name for the book of Numbers is In the Wilderness, which actually makes a lot more sense in our English word for it, numbers. Uh, where numbers comes from is because at the very beginning of the book, God takes a census. Uh, he counts the people. Like he wants every person accounted for. And I actually really appreciate God being such in the details about his people. Uh, he cares about every last one of them. There's no such thing as just numbers to God. He cares about each and every single one of his people by name. He wants his people to be with him. But the sad thing is that his people, that being us, that know the Lord here today, don't always want to be with him. And we see this reality unfold in the book of Numbers. And the reality is that God wants and demands his people to be a peculiar people. Like they're supposed to be different. We regularly say here that distinct lives point us to our distinct God. And that's not a random thing that takes place. It doesn't actually happen by chance. God lays out for them what it's going to look like now to be the people he has redeemed. Keep in mind, this book is written to a new nation, an actually specific nation that he is forming and building called Israel that are on the way to the land that was promised to them. And he's given them the law not so they can be saved from anything, uh, because the law can't save us, because the law, following the rules, keeping the morals, that cannot erase the fact that we've sinned against God and owe him for our sin. Rather, God's telling his people now how they're to live, to be a nation completely distinct from all the people of all the other nations who worship false gods. So a quick review, back in Genesis, it begins with the creation of the world that God spoke into existence, but it then transitions pretty quickly to the life of Abraham and his immediate descendants and the promise Abraham made that from his offspring that we would see a child born. In this context, it's a promise that would come uh, that's fulfilled ultimately in Christ. And it ends with their move to Egypt 
Uh, Then the book of Exodus tells us how they left Egypt and came to Sinai, how God liberated them from slavery and oppression in Egypt, how he freed his people, and now here they are on their way to the promised land out Sinai to receive the law that God is going to give them. Now Leviticus contains some of these laws, a lot of them actually, and Numbers has some as well, but Numbers primarily summarizes the 40 years they're in the wilderness in between Egypt and going to the promised land. It comes immediately once again after Exodus and the the historic chronology of the Bible. We could say the theme of uh, this from the Gospel Project, uh, the Gospel Coalition's uh, really kind of research on numbers, their booklet on numbers, their journal. Uh, The book of Numbers, the gradual fulfillment, here's a theme for it, of the promises to Abraham that his descendants would be the people of God and occupy the land of Canaan. If I can make it even more of a big picture kind of definition, it's a little bit different, I agree with that, Uh, but my book of Numbers definition is, behold the kindness and severity of our God. Behold the kindness that God is good, he's kind to us, he's loving, he's compassionate, and also the severity, that he is holy, that he won't let the guilty go unpunished, that he is first and foremost about his namesake and his glory and his reign and his rule and his lordship. And how both of those can simultaneously coexist together without any contradiction. Here's how it begins. After the census, the Israelites did everything the Lord commanded, Numbers chapter 2. So we're off to a good start. Everything the Lord commanded Moses, that Moses told the people they were doing. They camped by their banners in this way and moved out the same way each man by his clan and by his ancestral tribe. So they had been put together, grouped together with their ancestral tribes around Mount Sinai. Everything was in play as it was supposed to be. And the book really locks in on the reality of God's presence with Israel. And the cloud of fire, the pillar, also with the tabernacle. But we see over and over again that is to come, the repeated displays of unbelief by God's chosen people. That's going to actually delay their entry into the land of Canaan. And it's going to actually cost many lives because the wages of sin is death. But also we see God's grace as towards the end of the book, they are actually positioned to enter the land that God has given their forefathers, promised them, and that will be a reality for them. So the goal of Canaan, getting to the land, is the big picture, I guess, quest of the book of Numbers, and it's where Israel is now being prepared with the law to be God's people in their new land, but also to fight for the land. Because the war that would take place to go occupy the land uh, is really a war not against certain people, even though there are people they fight, but it's bigger than that. It's a war against idolatry. It's a war against false god worship. So one of the main settings is the tabernacle, which is people, oh, God's presence with us through this uh, really detailed plan that God had given us, and God's people dwelling with God. God, think about us for a minute, who made the heavens and the earth, who is their creator, is now dwelling with his people in a tent. In a tent. Now, it's a very elaborate tent. It was very detailed. All things went into the tent. The Ark of the Covenant's in there. There's a Holy of Holies. I mean, it's very expensive. All the things that had to take place for God's tent to dwell in in the tabernacle. But here's the creator of the universe, the God who led them out of Egypt, and he's dwelling with his people in a tent. I've never slept in a tent in my life. I don't believe in camping. I'm, I'm, I'm team hotels. That's just kind of my scene. Camping makes me dirty. I can't go 12 hours without a shower. Not camping, sorry. So don't invite me. Uh, but the tabernacle here should make us think of Eden before the fall, before sin entered the world. Here is God 
dwelling with his people. It's not the same thing as Eden because there's sin in the world and it can't be God dwelling without any other factors. But the creator is in the tent, just like people are sleeping in tents. So what does he give them? This amazing gift, he gives God's presence. The people have God with them. They are receiving and living in the amazing blessing of having the presence of God. Here's some of the effects of that. The Lord spoke to Moses. Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. You should say to them, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. In this way, they will pronounce my name over the Israelites and I will bless them. What an amazing thing. The reality of being God's people, that God will bless you and keep you and bring you peace. He's going to make his face shine upon you. But as I said earlier, it should remind us of Eden, but it's not the exact same as Eden before sin entered the world. Because due to sin and the reality of God's holiness, people cannot be in God's presence without a mediator. There must be one to go in between us and a holy God. And Moses would serve as that at this time. Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, number seven. He heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, from between the two cherubim. He spoke to him that way. So we see in chapter three that Moses, Aaron, and his sons who performed the duties of the sanctuary as a service, and here's the mediator, on behalf of the Israelites, camped in front of the tabernacle on the east, in front of the tent of meeting towards the sunrise. This is really important here. Any unauthorized person who came near it was, would be put to death because people cannot be in the presence, people who are sinners like us, cannot be in the presence of a holy God on their own without any kind of mediation. So in one through 10, those chapters, we see them prep for the journey and Mount Sinai is where they had been camping since Exodus chapter 19. That's a long time to camp. Uh, and this uh, teaches like Appalachian trail hiking and beyond. I mean, it's a long time to camp. And, it te- and then God's going to teach them a lot of things about what it means to be his people. Tell them about purity, about what it should look like to have sin cleaned out of the camp, to have marriages that honor God. There are going to be very strict purity laws, national ceremonial laws that are for those people, that nation, and how they're to practice ritualistic laws about how they're to approach God as sinners with a mediator. So things are going okay, and the people go from enjoying God's presence. He's dwelling among us in the tabernacle. Moses goes before us. He intercedes for us to now complaining about God. Now, they had been out in the wilderness for a long time. Now, God had given them so much grace, had done so much, showed them his power over and over again, freed them from so much. But here's what begins to happen. In 11 through 16, we see them in Kadesh, which is where the 40 years of wandering will begin, or will happen. And during the second year, in the second month, the 20th day of the month, the cloud, God's presence, the pillar with them, was lifted up above the tabernacle of the testimony. God would guide them by the cloud, where the cloud went, they were to follow, trusting God, his path, his way. The Israelites traveled on from the wilderness of Sinai, moving from one place to the next, until the cloud stopped in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time according to the Lord's commands through Moses. So this is what's happening here. God tells them, I'm going to lead you through the pillar, by the pillar, let's go. So he leads them out on their journey. But then what happens? Now people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. When the Lord heard, his anger burned, 
and fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. Now, as the moral of the story, never complain to God. No, that's not what it's saying. It's here are these people who have been given so much by the Lord, rescued from slavery, led out of Egypt, things that they did not deserve, chosen as God's people, being under a promise, and now things get a little bit old, a little bit difficult, a little bit tiresome, and what happens? They don't just complain to God, they start to complain about God. That maybe he's not good, that he's not best, that we can't really believe him or trust him. It's not a sin to complain to God. There's entire psalms written about that where God's like, hey, sounds good, add music to it. Rather, the sin is complaining about God and not trusting God and believing God and what he has in store for them. And the people cried out to Moses and he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. Again, going before, interceding. So that place was named Teberah, which because the Lord's fire had blazed among them. The riffraff, oh, that's a Bible word, riffraff, among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, this is one of my life verses, who will feed us meat? They, had, they wanted different food. They've been eating manna forever, and they were kind of tired of it, wanted something different. But look at what happens. We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers, whatever suits you, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at. But, but this manna, as in things were better before. When we were in our old life, when we were trapped in Egypt, before you did this for us, things were better. What they're saying is maybe there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. We could just go back to where we came from. The food was a lot better there. They aren't trusting God. They aren't believing in the new life that he has given them, his presence, being his people. Even their leaders, people like Miriam and Aaron, begin to complain. So what does God do in his very, very much anger? He also shows them grace and continues to provide for his people. He gives them lots of food, including quail. They'd have to go rent out some plantation to go hunting. He just gave them quail. Better food. They're actually getting the meat, and it's better than anything they would have had in Egypt because it's God's meat. And then chapter 13 begins with a lot of hope. We're kind of back in the place of, okay, here we go again. We're reestablished. God's anger has come on them. Moses begged on God's behalf to, to, not, to, to give them grace and mercy. God does this, gives them more food to eat. And then it says, the Lord spoke to Moses. Send men to scout out the land of Canaan. The land, like here it is. That I'm giving, it's grace, I'm giving to the Israelites. Send one man who is a leader among them from each of their ancestral tribes. Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the Lord's command. All the men were leaders in Israel. So he's taking his leaders and saying, go check it out. Go see the land. Come back and tell the people all about it and how wonderful it is and how amazing it is. It, that it's on. The men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, we went into the land where you sent us. It's worth the hype. Like, it's not overrated. It's not false advertisement. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey. Like, here it actually is, and here is some of its fruits. However, people living in the land are strong. 
and the cities are large and fortified. Like, we're in big trouble. We also saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. The Hethites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, they live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb, one of the guys who was sent to go scout the land, quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, let's go up now. Let's go take possession of it right now. Let's go get the land because we can certainly conquer it. But the men who had gone up with him responded, we can't attack the people because they are stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there and the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers. And we must have seemed the same to them. Man, that land looks awesome. There ain't no way we're going to be able to take it. Have you seen those guys? We look like grasshoppers compared to them. They're probably even making fun of us and calling us that. I, did, I, I do uh, football chapels for, for uh, off, uh, somewhat frequently a couple times a season for visiting football teams that come to play FSU. So randomly they'll just get in touch with me and be like, can you come speak to Virginia before the game at the hotel, you know, kind of thing. So I'll go do that. It's always fun. I'm a big football guy, so it's always a lot of fun. Well, a few years back, uh, it was the second to last game of the season, the week before the UF game. Florida State was in the top 10. They, they, you know, they had a really good record and, uh, back in the day. And um, it's back in the day, just saying, just saying. And the chapel I was doing was for University of Idaho, who was 0 and 11, about to play a top 10 football team. What do you tell them? I mean, like, don't get hurt. You know, may the Lord be with you. I mean, like, what, 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 do, you, what do you say? Like, the peace of the Lord to all of you. Call your mom if she's worried. I mean, I, what, what, do you, what do you say to Idaho, who's about to play Florida State? And none of those Idaho guys, they know they can't beat Florida State either. So they're just like, whatever, man, just pray for us. You know, like, yeah, it's just, you know, I pray for your doctors. Like, what, what, what are we doing after the game? So on the way there, I'm like, man, what do I do? And I, I kind of did a basic talk on just like, hey, everything matters to God. Play for God's glory no matter what. It's going to be 70 to nothing. That's okay. He still loves you. You know, that kind of thing. And you're special to him, I promise. Uh, so these guys, talk about difficulty. Go talk to an 11, 11 team before they're going to go play one of the top teams in the country at that time and that year. And it was just one of those things where I just kind of shook my head. I almost wanted to acknowledge it talking before them, but I didn't. I tried to be cool, but I was like, well, I don't know how to begin, but, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, Idaho playing Florida State in football, it's like grasshoppers. You know, it's like grasshoppers. You'll watch some of these games. Like, if you go to a game, you'll see, like, a big SEC school like LSU or Georgia. When they're playing one of those, like, you know, Akron, Miami, Ohio kind of schools, even during warm-ups, you're like, this is going to be ugly. I mean, it's like NFL guys over here and, like, walk-on Willie over here, right? It's just, like, it's just like two totally different universes, two totally different things. And I just thought about that and talking to those teams beforehand, like, what I would have told them, what I did tell them, which not much encouragement, just more of a reminder of who God is. That's not this situation, even though it looks like it. God's people feel like Idaho playing Florida State. We're grasshoppers compared to them, and they even know it. They're even probably making jokes about it. They look like grasshoppers, and they're right. On their own, they are. And the point of the story is not, hey, God's going to give you the muscles to go beat them. The issue is God keeps his promises and keeps his word. 
So you don't need to go to like God's special Cobra Kai school to go beat these guys. You just need to trust God that he's going to give you the land he promised, no matter how that happens. No matter what he's going to do. Anyone remember the Red Sea? That y'all experienced? You remember that, where the most powerful army in the world was coming after you, and God parted the Red Sea, let you get across, then drowned all of Pharaoh's army, and all of God's people are walking on dry land? Remember that? Remember the plagues? Remember the God who was so faithful to you as his chosen people that instead of killing your firstborn, he passed over your house because the blood of the lamb by God's grace and his choosing of you was on your doorposts? You're worried about some guys next to the Jordan River who were big? And the whole community broke into loud cries. And the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt. If only we had died in the wilderness. God, you don't know what's best. We can't trust your plan. Why is the Lord bringing us into his land to die by the sword? Like, it's over. God, what? I'm not, even, I'm not an atheist. I'm not saying you don't exist because of problems. I'm trying to say I can't trust you. Our wives and children, what about them? They'll become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Don't y'all think we should just turn around? We, we kind of know the way. Should we just go back? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader. Not God's appointed leader, not Moses. Not, more importantly than that, the pillar of cloud that God has given us to guide us. Let's, let's appoint a man-focused leader that we want. So Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly of the Israelite community. Joshua, son of Nun, Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who scouted out the land, tore their clothes, a sign of mourning in this time, and said to the entire Israelite community, the land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord. Don't be afraid of the people of the land, for he will devour them. It's God we're talking about. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Like, we're his people. Don't be afraid of them. While the whole community threatened to stone them, you know, if you don't like what somebody says, just, you know, attack, attack, attack. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites in the tent of meeting. God was going to show up, and he had some things to say. So what does God do? He punishes his people. But here Moses steps in and acts again as the mediator. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust in me despite all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them with a plague and destroy them. The same things that were used for not God's people, to liberate his own people. He's saying, I'm going to do to them. Then I'll make you into a greater and mightier nation than they are. But Moses replied to the Lord, the Egyptians will hear about it. For by your strength you brought up this people from them. They will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people. How you, Lord, are seen face to face. How your cloud stands over them. How, how you could go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you kill this people with a single blow, the nations that have heard of your fame will declare, since the Lord wasn't able to bring this people into the land he swore to give them, he has slaughtered them in the wilderness. I guess he's not that great. 
I guess following him really isn't worth it. I guess there is more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. So now may my Lord's power be magnified just as you have spoken. The Lord, you know what he is? He's slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion. But you know what else? It's also a holy God. He will not leave the guilty unpunished, bring the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people and keep them of the greatness of your faithful love just as you have forgiven them from Egypt until now. And the Lord responded, I have pardoned them as you requested. I'm not going to kill them in this moment. They will live. Yet as I live and as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none of the men who have seen my glory in the signs that performed in Egypt and the wilderness and have tested me these ten times and did not obey will ever see the land I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who despise me will see it. But since my servant Caleb has a different spirit and remain loyal to me, a God worshiper, not a self-worshiper or an idol worshiper, I will bring him into the land where he has gone, the land he saw for himself, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and Canaanites are living in the lowlands, turn back tomorrow and head for the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Back to where you first were delivered that clearly you have functionally forgotten about. God will bring your children whom you said would become plundered to the land you rejected and they will enjoy it. As in the next generation is gonna get their chance to go in this line of promise. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. You're going to die because of your sin. Your children will be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and bear the penalty of your acts of unfaithfulness. Generational sin affecting generations to come. Until all your corpses lie scattered in the wilderness, you will bear the consequences of your iniquity 40 years based on the number of 40 days you scattered the land. For a year for each day, a year for each day, you will know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. I swear that I will do this to the entire evil community that has conspired against me. They will come to an end in the wilderness and there they will die. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. That may sound very harsh. To my human mind, it sounds harsh to me. Until I remember the fact that God is holy. And if God didn't care about sin, then the cross of Jesus Christ would be the most meaningless, purposeless event in the history of the world. But this whole mediator of Moses, what's, what's happening here? What, does Moses like love God's people more than God does? Like, is God going to strike everybody down? Moses is like, please don't do it. And God's like, okay, I guess you talked me into it. That's not what's happening here. God loves his people infinitely, infinitive, I can't say the word, infinity more. <laughs> infinitely more. There it was, sorry. Infinitely more. I went to Christian college, sorry. Infinitely more than, than Moses does. What's happening here is the point of numbers is not to give us a day-by-day account of the people. We don't have 40 years straight, day after day after day, of an explanation of what they're doing, what their lives are like. It's not real housewives of the wilderness. Like None of those things are happening. This is proving a theological point for the role of a mediator, one to go before the people, to be an intercessor. And that mediator points us much forward to the perfect mediator, that being Jesus Christ. God has given a sentence for the entire generation. That's what's happening in the wilderness now. And notice the connection. I couldn't miss this. Between dissatisfaction and sin. 
dissatisfaction of the people, from the food they ate to their, how long it was going to take to being a... Notice the difference. Notice the, that, that, that marriage. Dissatisfaction and sin. When I talk to people so often that sin in their marriages, that sin in their home lives, that sin, I mean, on and on and on, a lot of it comes back to being dissatisfied. And our dissatisfaction, the way that's solved is not by just like making things better and more enjoyable and more entertaining. It's by asking the question, where am I truly going for the living water I'm looking for? Because it's not found in the Lord. If he's not the one who ultimately satisfies you, then it's never going to be found in anything else, and that dissatisfaction and sin will become a reality in your life. In 17 through 36, those chapters, they're on the plains of Moab now, across from the promised land. God continues to preserve his people, continues to provide instructions for the priests in their role as people who were in charge of much of the, the worship process. In chapter 20, we see Moses even sin. He disobeys God and how he's to get water out of a rock. Rather than wait on God and God's instructions, he rushed to be his own savior at the time to give himself water. And because of that, he was also going to be banned from the land. But God is still there, still showing grace. The people go on to worship Baal. So this new journey of a new generation begins. Battles begin to take place where Israel gets victories over these people they were worried about. But Israel's persistent failure to keep the law in that God never forsakes them. He never goes back on his promise. There will be a people of their descendants who go to the land. They have to wait an extra 40 years, but eventually they go there. Why, Numbers 14, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion. But it's not all a gloomy picture. The book encourages them, but also warns them at the same time. God gives them their last instructions about entering the land for this new generation. Again, it's theological. He's trying to teach them much more lessons about who he is and their sin before him. Also to instruct future generations of readers, like generations to come with the lessons to be learned from the people in the wilderness. It's basically saying your forefathers made many mistakes on the journey to Canaan. Now you don't go do the same. I mean, Paul wrote about this generations, generations, generations later in 1 Corinthians 10. Talking to the church about their temptation, their sin, here's what he said. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters. This is way forward from this event. That our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ, who's the ultimate provision for us. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, for the church, for Christians. So we did not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written that people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the age have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to to fall. There's precedent for this, he's saying. 
And no temptations come upon you except what is common to humanity. You're not the first ones to go through this. God's people have been tempted for generations. But you know what? God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able. With the temptation, he also provides the way out. So you may be able to bear it. And what's the way out? It's no to the world and yes to God. When we get to the book of Leviticus, which is also telling the same story, but focusing on different aspects. Mark Roker wrote this, that Leviticus, it behooves the New Testament believer to give more attention to this book. For we base our eternal destinies on the one whom Leviticus loudly speaks. God's going to continue to read the law to the people. Jay Sklar, who I think is the best American scholar on Leviticus, he was asked if there was just one session to teach. He only had one chance to teach on Leviticus. What would he say? He said he would focus on understanding the law is ex- the expression of the values of the lawgiver. The law is a window into God's heart. And in God's heart, we see a holy God, and we see a personal present God who wants to have a people for himself. We see this to start the book. I'm not going through the whole thing, I promise. The Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Speak to the Israelites and tell them. So tabernacle here taking place, all these things. When any of you brings an offspring to the Lord from your livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to bring an unblemished male, a perfect as possible in that time, spotless sacrifice. He'll bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting so that it may be accepted by the Lord. The major focus of Leviticus is atonement. God's covering, his provision for forgiveness over sin. It doesn't ultimately wash our sins away. It covers it for a little while to satisfy the demands to be in the presence of God as his people. And what's so amazing about our God is the sacrifice, one, was showing our inability to keep God's law, but it also was as much about God longing to draw near to his people. You see both those things taking place. The word holy or holiness appears 92 times in Leviticus. But God's holiness is a whole other category of other that we can't even begin to comprehend. We're told that for the life of the creature is in the blood. For I have appointed to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. We see here again, just like in Exodus, substitutionary atonement. That each time an animal sacrifice was brought to the altar, this is Jay Sklar here, the offerer would lay his hand on its head and it was accepted for him. The ritual act of pressing one's hand on the head of the offering was an act of transfer, identifying the animal as a substitute to take the presenter's place in the ritual to follow. The action was often accompanied with a verbal confession of sins over the animal. So this Old Testament ritual of sacrifice provides the backdrop of the reality of the sinless Christ became a substitute for sinners. But this is where it points us. We see the role of the priests. Their presence taught the people that it was impossible to accomplish atonement by themselves. They had to have one stand before God on their behalf. That God's gift and grace of atonement, that it was possible, had to be accomplished by a faithful priest. But this ritual will be fulfilled in the fact that I don't need to have a priest go before a million God anymore. I don't have to have anyone stand in my place. Because Jesus is the great mediator who not only served as the high priest, but also the sacrifice. 
both at the same time. God is not approachable without a mediator. The New Testament tells us we can approach God's throne with confidence. God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And Leviticus instructs us in chapter 16 that the high priest could only approach God one day a year, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, that only with the blood to atone for himself first, because he had his own sin to account for, and then for the people. It was the only time anyone was ever permitted to be in the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest was granted entry. He will make atonement, verse 16 of chapter 16, for the most holy place in this way for all their sins because the Israelites' impurities and rebellious acts. Any other approach, any other approach would result in immediate death. This God is so transcendent. And I worry sometimes that a generation only wants to stress God's nearness like only wants to really focus on God's love and only wants to focus on that relationship with God, which is so important and so critical. But it's so easy to focus just on his nearness and never on his transcendence. This book warns us against flippant familiarity with God. Kind of the God is my homeboy, he's my buddy, give him some nucks kind of God. But it's important also to know that the God of Leviticus has not changed. And I think the cross of Christ proves that. That he still wants to be with his people, but he still must punish sin to make that possible. Thankfully, God is near. He does want a relationship with all of us, and he does love us, but not at the expense of justice. That's why the first seven chapters of Leviticus just deal with atoning for sin alone. He said, I'll provide the sacrifice. Let's do Leviticus 17 again. The life of the creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives. This is a lifeblood that makes atonement. Like, I am providing it. Like, this gracious, good God is providing the way. He's demanded perfection, and then he's supplied for us what we do when we can't reach it. He's made the demands, and he's met the demands. Ephesians 5, 2, Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God that he's pleased with once and for all. No day of atonement, gotta go back over and over again and give it to somebody else, but now it comes through Jesus and I'm his child, a child of God. Leviticus goes into neighbor love, to love our neighbor as ourselves. That whole idea goes back to Leviticus. We see a lot more than just being nice. We see things like forgiving those who have wronged us, not to seek revenge on others. Interactions with business practices and courts and family members and uh, how we treat the poor and the marginalized and the sojourner, all these things are in are what it looks like to be God's people are all found in Leviticus. The good news is as members of God's new covenant in Christ that comes through his blood, we no longer have to use the blood of bulls or goats or lambs that could ever actually fully cleanse us from sin. See, the code of law was issued by God to lay the groundwork for a politically and geographically defined generation. The moral law would point us to our need as people to be in the presence of God, what that would require. But we're not done with sacrifices. Book of Romans chapter 12 says, now our lives are a sacrifice. They're a continual sacrifice. We don't go and say, hey, hey, priest, here's my goat. 
please sacrifice it for me. We say, no, God, here's my life. That you died so that I no longer live, but now I live for you, the one who died for me and rose again. This very wordy book is ultimately pointing us to the ultimate word of God, Jesus, the son who is to come. I love this from Hebrews. Every priest stands day after day. This is Leviticus right here. Ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. They're on their feet all day long, day of atonement, over and over again. There's, there's no chairs in the tabernacle. There's no place for them because there's no time to sit down. But this man, referring to Christ, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who were sacri- sanctified. I mean, how amazing. The writer of Hebrews captures this perfectly, saying that the priest, day after day, is working to make sure all these animals are accounted for and sacrificed. And in the details of the tabernacle, there's not a chair for the priest to sit in. Why? Because there's just no time to do it. But what did Jesus do according to the scriptures once he offered sacrifice once and for all? He sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because the work is finished. The work is finished. That doesn't mean that Jesus is in a lazy boy chilling. That's not what it's talking about. It means that he satisfied the Heavenly Father's demands of justice by suffering for sins in my place. Also in Numbers, one of God's punishments for the rebellion of his people was its snakes. Anybody scared of snakes? It's been your worst nightmare. We're not going to pass them out, I promise. It's been all of our worst nightmares. They were venomous snakes. They would bite people, kill people. It's part of their judgment. But God in his grace continues to provide a way for his people to be saved, to live, even though they deserve death. He told Moses to take a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And that whenever people are getting bit by snakes, it's horrible, that they're to look at the serpent up on the pole, and they will live. Look up, you will live, even though you're being bitten. Jesus in John chapter 3, right before he does the famous, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so whoever believes in him will not perish, have everlasting life, John three sixteen. Right before that he says, in the same way, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. High, lifted up for the people to see. The Son of Man, which is what Jesus called himself, will be lifted up. Now ultimately in his his ascension, in his lordship, in his reign, he'll be lifted up, where every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. But on earth, how did he get lifted up? Up on a cross, a wooden cross to where people in the wilderness would look at the serpent up on the cross and be spared death. Now we look up to the one who hangs on the cross and we look to him for life. And by look, not just a visual, oh, I see him, but looking as in I trust you. I put my faith in you. I can't save myself. I'm an idolatrous wilderness wanderer. 
golden cow, Baal-worshiping person without, dissatisfied person without you. So in the same way, I'm spared by snakes biting me, by looking to the bronze serpent statue in the book of Exodus that God has provided, book of Numbers that God has provided. Now I look to a cross to save me from death. Because the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is everlasting life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your word. I'm thankful for those books that might seem insignificant to my just basic attention span of reading are so powerful in what it points us to about the reality of who you are and your holiness and your splendor and your majesty and your greatness and your glory and your love and kindness and patience and your saving plan and your redemption and salvation. All these things are always working on our behalf. We thank you that we don't have to have someone else stand in our place. We know it's required because of our sin. We're thankful there is a mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus Christ. He died a death that we deserved. He rose from the grave three days later, conquering Satan's sin and death. And that one day he will return. We don't believe that right now he is sitting at the right hand. Lord, so we look to Christ. As you forgive our sins, forgive our idolatry, forgive our lack of trust. We know that you have made a promise to us that we have received that promise already in Jesus being in our place in his resurrection and his ascension. And the last thing we wait for is for Jesus to come again and make all things new and reign forever and ever. So we know that if all these other things have already been true, that we can still trust you, that you who began a good work in us be faithful to complete it in Christ. So forgive us when we look back at the Red Sea and think that maybe Egypt has something better to offer. Well, we know with you, with you, is where joy, satisfaction, life, truth, the answers we're looking for, where all of them reside. Thank you for the great name that is above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us the Old Testament to see your promises made, your promises fulfilled and kept, and how you have a people for yourself that we get to be included in by your grace. We thank you in Jesus' name.